This is Office Hours, the show for sharing experiences and stories in security, risk management, compliance, and audit. Brought to you by Galvanize. Now, here's your host, Dan Zitting. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Zitting, of course, as usual. And today, I am exceptionally lucky to have a very special guest for our first episode of the reboot of Office Hours. And of course, that guest is the president and CEO of Galvanize, Lori Schultz. Hi, Lori. Thanks for joining today. Hi, everyone. Thanks. So really exciting to be getting this kicked off again, but what an uh, uh, an incredible time to be doing it in. As, uh, of course, Lori, you and I are both doing this from home today as we're quarantined into our, our relative houses. It's been quite a wild ride over the past few weeks and months. It's really hard to believe it, and in fact, how things have changed so rapidly. That's perfect. That's exactly what we're going to talk about today is, um, of course, there's only one risk everybody's everybody's talking about. You and I have been doing a, a big circuit and, and, and discussing lots about it ourselves. And I wanted to um, capture your perspective as um, not only somebody who's in the risk management profession, but more importantly, uh, as a CEO, uh, what this means for us and, and what this means for us now, how you're managing now, and what it means longer term. So that's the idea today. And so to get started, Lori, um, I'm thinking back even just three or four weeks ago, um, as the COVID-19 situation was emerging, um, what would you say, looking back then, what were the, call it top three or top five um, risks or issues you were concerned about at the time? Well, I've been using this this term rear view mirror and uh, of course, we've been doing daily CEO communications to all of our employees. So I actually went back into the look. And actually, what's interesting is even the difference uh, as compared to six weeks ago. So I went back six weeks ago. And I, it's just remarkable what felt like hard decisions at the time are so rearview mirror today. At the time, we had just uh, made the decision to cancel our customer conference. We had a thousand customers planned in uh, Florida. We had just uh, enforced mandatory work from home, which is not insignificant for us. We have 500 employees in 14 countries. Uh, We had just finished uh, building our first version of a galvanized crisis management toolkit. We did that literally in, I think, Dan, it was seven days. We redeployed almost 10% of our entire workforce, and uh, we're really excited about sharing more of that with with, uh, everyone today. We'd uh, just launched a self-reporting tool, so employees are feeling uh, that they may have some symptoms or who are in active testing for COVID-19. They had an opportunity to share uh, that with with us. And we actually introduced a work-from-home technology survey, which, uh, you know, is a very obvious thing to do. And uh, it's helped us, you know, understand better people's ability to work from home. That was so six to four weeks ago, <laughs> so rear view mirror ago, I, I can't even imagine how obvious, you know, it is today. And it, it certainly didn't seem obvious then. And so as I actually look at what was on my mind four weeks ago, it started uh, transitioning significantly to, all right, we're through this. Everybody is working from home. Um, how do we create a rallying cry around this, this crisis management application that we built? We've been calling it the COVID-19 toolkit. We are uh, committed to significantly redeploying our resources so that we can get that into the hands of customers and organizations. Uh, we, we don't even do business yet today. It's, it's partly our contribution to this, this, uh, this situation. It's pretty incredible. I, 
the the notion of canceling our annual customer conference, of course, which you and I have done the last whatever it's been six seven years in a row, um, seemed like an enormous decision, and now it seems like something so small compared to how we're thinking about uh, you know thinking about the world changing after this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to state the obvious, that type of bricks and mortar activity, I mean, is is definitely a rearview mirror item, and and fundamentally, I you know, for us as a as a software business. I can see us really seeing some permanence in this transition as we work from home, as we do virtual outreach like this. Uh, I, I see this as, you know, if there's a positive side, this is a very important learning for us and a real opportunity for us to develop a new skill. I would agree. And as I think about risk management professionals, if there's ever been a motivating event for us to all finally switch to being a truly digital profession, um, nothing like the current moment. So, so let me ask you this, drilling down a little bit, um, those, there was a time frame in there where things became very, very real time, where we were thinking about closing offices, where we were thinking about going full remote, trying to make decision on, on the customer conference. When, that, when, the, when the situation was breaking and things were really crazy, um, how did you coordinate your uh, response and, and the management of, of those risks? And maybe in particular thinking about... Um, what was your thought process and who was really your response team? Well, I mean, you, you said it there. I mean, we have to be agile and ideally the ability to be agile while being informed by live data. That's a, that's a great combination. And if you can uh, surround sound that with a, a coordinated uh, approach across a leadership group of risk professionals, C-suite through the board, then, I mean, that's a big formula for an effective response. Uh, we used and have been using the COVID-19 toolkit on ourselves, And uh, we'll, we'll explore it a little bit more here. But, you know, it, it, it kind of um, buckets out uh, eight core areas of focus for me and for us. Anything from workforce health through to customer engagement and continuity, um, reputation management. And so what has been a very powerful um, approach for me is to be able to use this capability to coordinate a whole bunch of conversations across different risk owners, if you will, at Galvanize to make sure that we all have the same information at the same time. And of course, people that have the same information at the same time usually draw the same conclusions. So it's been a very, very powerful vehicle for getting everybody on the same page. And, and of course, as a, a risk management software provider, one might suspect that we have a bit of an agenda in this, but very authentically, um, you're referring to a COVID-19 toolkit, something we built uh, inside of our software, our Highbomb platform, to help uh, quantify the the scale of, of the impact, quantify um, directionally what does this mean for the business, and then make sure that the things you wanted us, Lori, to carry out um, in terms of plans and process changes actually got uh, got carried through. Um, I think that's been very successful. Um, we're offering those tools up free to our free to any of our uh, any of our customers, or frankly, our non-customers, if they uh, are interested as well. Um, but maybe I'll ask all of that to to say, um, could I characterize a little bit? Um, just trying to set galvanize aside and our our interest in selling our platform for you as a CEO. How important has your GRC platform become to you? It has been a lifeline uh, from so many dimensions. I mean, like probably everybody listening to this, um, 
I'm preoccupied right now with our employees. People are afraid. People are afraid for their health and they're afraid for their financial security. And this has been in a, a very authentic way for me to transparently share all of the information I have in a prioritized way so that I can help give people control where possible. I mean, the one thing that we all control as individuals is where we spend our time. And what's been so powerful about this capability is I can, um, I can marry supply and demand if I can put it that way. Uh, we can see where our customers are engaging with us and I can see where employees are spending their time. And I, I mean that to sound very positive in that, uh, you know, we've got a lot of talented employees and the ability to match where they're spending their time with where our customers need the, the most help has been an extremely effective outcome of, of, using, uh, of using our technology on ourselves. And so that's impactful. Uh, appreciate that. That's um, I, I think that was really impactful for the business. But I'll, I'll and now I'm going to shift the question a little bit because at least for me as an employee of Galvanize, um, I know one of the things that's really helped me is the um, the way the way communication has flowed and the and the authenticity in that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about just, I think it'd be useful just a little bit about your approach to, um, kind of, kind of how our culture has supported this, how you've, the actual mechanical steps you've taken to communicate with employees and what the content of that has been. Yeah, I, I, I think what is extremely important in this type of situation is that we are as human as possible, that we have empathy, that we're accessible that we don't act like victims, uh, yet at the same time, we try to find ways where we can take control of the situation. We have been very committed to daily communications with our employees. Uh, I, I've been writing a daily CEO communication. I, I, I'm, I'm honestly actually amazed at how, uh, how much of an impact that has been, not by virtue of the facts given, but I think by virtue of the, the heart um, that is being led with, and not just mine, there's been many kind of guest authors into this, but, you know, at the end of the day, our ability to humanize uh, ourselves as leaders makes us relatable, and our ability to, you know, use some of the, the insights we're gaining from the use of our technology to kind of put control back in our employees is, you can spend your time here, or you can have your conversation this way. I mean, we haven't even talked about it. Obviously, technology is a great enabler of a conversation. We use Slack, and it's allowed us to you know, connect oceans with 500 employees all over the world. Uh, I mean, if anything, uh, that kind of daily human transparent conversation has probably been, you know, honestly, probably one of the most effective parts of how uh, we're getting through this situation. So it's interesting you uh, interesting you say that. I, I think um, I think that's really important also. And as I translate from my role as being part of the um, executive team at Galvanize and being um, and, and being part of your uh, leadership team, and I translate that in my brain to my years of playing the role of risk management professional. One of the things I've never put in an audit program, or I've never put in a in a disaster recovery plan when I used to build those, was um, make sure, key way, make sure that communications that go to employees are as humanized as possible and as authentic right. as possible. Um, 
and and ironically, I I I'm I'm surprised I've never thought that way because I absolutely think that way when I'm when I'm acting as part of um, rolling out your leadership response to this in my role at Galvanize. Um, so I think it's I think it's an interesting um, or maybe more not so much interesting an important question to say. A lot of how we respond in things like this aren't just the nuts and bolts and the mechanics and the processes we yeah. rolled out, but how it's done. And I'm not sure as risk professionals, we've really considered that side of, of considering risk. What does it mean to the employee base if um, top level communications aren't transparent and are being misunderstood? Well, I think about that's a, a very good point. I mean, if I think about how my leaders have helped me be a better leader, um, it's been by figuring out how to bring kind of that qualitative, more heart side, um, part of the response to all of the data that we have. And, you know, maybe it's just worth mentioning, we, we do a bi-monthly employee survey. Um, and that is an opportunity for us to get qualitative feedback on just how our employees are feeling. What's their sentiment? Do they feel productive? Are they afraid? How do they feel about our communications? Are we living our values? Now, imagine that data coexisting with all of the other quantifiable stuff we can bring, you know, what's your technology at home? What's the incident of the pandemic in, in the city that you live in? You know, that kind of data can land in one tool. And I can't tell you how useful it is for me to be able to see kind of the heartfelt feedback of employees because it differs around the world. And it allows me to engage with uh, and communicate in a more customized way by having that. Excellent. So I, I do want to I want to drill down a little bit into the nuts and bolts of how uh, how risk management is actually happening. But before we do that, I I think um, you mentioned a couple of times there, and I mentioned a couple of times there um, how how what we're doing. Um, compares to our peers. And I think more importantly, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about what I'm seeing from our customers. Um, maybe you could just characterize how, you know, you're certainly a part of a community of, of peer CEOs. Um, you sit on a number of boards. Could you um, maybe... Uh, qualify what you, what you what you'd say maybe broadly the range of kind of risk management maturity you've seen through the the crisis to date is um, yeah. because I think in a crisis like this um, this is this has got to be risk management at its best so if this is companies at their best and where it's at the top of their radar um, even in this time what would you say the the range of maturity you you and how do you feel like others benchmark? There's a lot to unpack there. Of course, certain industries are, are better situated, will have more resilience than others. Yeah. Uh, I feel very privileged in not just the, uh, the, 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 the industry that we're in, but just the culture and the technology and the business model that we've built, especially over the last nine years. They, make us far more resilient than others. So we, we have that advantage, admittedly. I'd say, though, on a more um, controllable basis, I do see a, a difference in, in CEOs, if you will, that have access to the full picture at the same time. I, I'd say it feels to me like maybe as many as two-thirds, even 80% of my peers um, might get a piece at a time. And I... Uh, 
you know, that's not the worst thing on the planet, but it's certainly not the most effective thing on the planet. And uh, those CEOs are being compelled to make trade-offs that they might not even be aware of. I'd say um, the conversations tend to be a bit more financially centric and quantifiable, um, as you would imagine, mm -hmm. but they, they lack the, the softer touch or, you know, maybe the ability to, I mean, it's not like we're not making some hard financial decisions as well. But when I talk to employees or to my board or even the customers, I can provide broader qualitative context for it. And I think I can secure broader buy-in for some of the harder decisions we need to make. For example, you know, getting our employees declared on vacation or uh, to give up uh, variable compensation. Those are easy, easier asks when employees otherwise feel broadly engaged, close to the truth, and um, some ability to change where they're spending their time so that they can kind of contribute to a positive outcome on the other side. So I guess just to restate it, uh, the ability to have the whole picture across a bunch of diverse risks in one place is an advantage I'd say we more uniquely have than many of my CEO peers. I would be disappointed if we didn't, but I would I would say even, um, even customers I've worked with that are in industries where they have fairly mature risk management, I think there's, um, I would say there's there's surely some that are are more mature in terms of the the nuts and bolts. Of course, um, banking where they have DR sites where they test DR plans quarterly, those sorts of things, all as part of how they're regulated. They may be more mature. Um, they may be more mature from a nuts and bolts perspective, but I'm not sure they're more mature from a an emotional engagement perspective, an employee perspective, and a um, and uh, just thinking about how to be as agile as possible uh, moving through the moving through uh, the crisis. It's probably worth um, mentioning here. I'd say we we have another uh, privilege in that uh, our board is very supportive of a, a people first, profit second agenda. And it's allowed us to emphasize, you know, a couple of things in particular, but number one, frankly, is we uh, are committed to protecting as many of the 500 jobs that we have today with galvanized employees. We're, we're committed to doing that with the employees by redeploying them where necessary. Um, and, you know, as an outcome, I mean, the redeployment is to put them in front of those customer activities that can add as much value as possible. And so the second part of this, of course, is, where there's interest for us to give our resources away so that uh, customers and, and organizations who don't even do business with us can get their hands on maybe some of, if not all of the, the tool we're using on ourselves. Let me shift the conversation a little bit now. I, I'm going to mention again, I want to drill into a little bit more nuts and bolts and how to, but um, we started this off talking about what we're, what were the top three to five things as the, as the situation was breaking um, back four weeks ago, six weeks ago. Um, now that we've, uh, you know, here at Galvanize, we've settled into working from home. Um, we've, I think, embraced the fact that probably the world has, that this has permanently changed. And it's go and as, as far as from an economic standpoint, it's probably all going to come back slower than how quickly that activity went away. Um, just given where things are now, and we've evolved a, a month, two months forward, um, what does that same list for you look like now? 
Well, at the risk of sounding uh, a bit repetitive here, there's actually two things on my list right now that I'm spending all my time thinking about. It's back to the marriage of supply and demand, as you can imagine. So I, I have live data that allows me to see where customers and prospects are spending their time. Um, there's a lot of conversations happening like this. So there's a lot of activity in our marketing organization. It's a, a place where I may start shifting resources. Um, and so traffic, if I can put it that way, has changed even in the last four weeks. And um, you know, I'm preoccupied with trying to prioritize what employees with what skills will become available first so that we can uh, redeploy them. That's a, a very, very uh, personal and extremely critical conversation I'm having right now with my leaders and uh, with my board. I'd say uh, on the softer side of things, you know, what if I look, if I think about things psychologically, you know, at the beginning, this was kind of pure adrenaline. Um, we were all just doing the best we could with shock and disbelief. And, you know, as we got thing after thing in the rearview mirror, kind of just remarking, it's like, that was so obvious. I can't even believe we were debating it. This is just like, we're all fast forwarding through this life MBA as I, I, I like to, you know, describe things like this. I'd say, you know, once that kind of pure adrenaline wore out, um, I hate to call it this, but I, I guess I did use the term a bit more manufactured adrenaline as we kind of got into weeks three through five. It's, you know, I, I want to keep the conversation and the adrenaline going. And people were very, you know, on the edge of their seats. And uh, we and you and I, Dan, and others were very visible. And so we've begun this reach out to employees. We're doing a lot of virtual town halls, lots of one-on-ones. People are alone and they're afraid and they want their leaders to talk to them. It's as simple as that. So the, the personal leadership shift has, has really um, emphasized that personal touch. And so now as I sit here facing into, uh, what is this, week six of us now uh, quarantined here largely, um, now this is becoming a new normal. <laughs> it's not real adrenaline and it's not manufactured adrenaline. This is a new normal. And, uh, you know, and I don't have any specific words of wisdom to offer that on that yet, but I am preoccupied with the thought that, you know, this is going to last a, a very long time. And, uh, you know, getting everybody a heck of a lot more comfortable with, um, you know, this being the, the new business life, at least for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Um, We've talked about a lot of the uh, a lot about our response and 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 lessons you've learned as CEO broadly. I want to drill down a little bit. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times our our COVID nineteen toolkit. Um, that that toolkit was built around um, was built around a framework for crisis response that we put together uh, early on uh, in in our uh, response. And the reason why we did that then is this is different. We've never been through a pandemic before. We've been through disasters where things fall offline very quickly. Um, we've not been through something like this before where, where we can kind of see the train coming down the tracks, but the train is coming faster and faster and faster. And that took a little bit different response framework, I think, than what, I, at least what I'd ever thought about previously as a, as a, as a risk management professional. So that framework, um, we broke into, uh, 
eight eight specific areas, uh, what we called eight response objectives, um, that we really wanted to see uh, uh, a, a well-executed response inside of Galvanize. Uh, I want to talk through each one of those eight just uh, quickly here to talk about uh, what we're doing and what 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 other organizations are doing and what some of those uh, response plans look like. But just broadly before we do that, maybe could I have you comment on, um, I think as CEO, this wasn't something you were necessarily expecting was to have a uh, quite a, uh, a, a framework that thought so broadly about this uh -huh. scenario. Could you maybe just comment on um, what the uh, how the framework was helpful for you, um, maybe if it brought some kind of risk management discipline around um, how we were thinking, uh, maybe just comment broadly on on uh, on on how the framework has supported your job as CEO. Everything in one place, data informed, on a moving target of change, um, by. Anchoring my daily through weekly conversation on these kind of eight elements, I've been able to bring continuity to a situation that's changing every day, actually. Mm -hmm. So the ability to connect the dots through this one view, knowing that the dots are moving around has been a really powerful uh, thing. And if I could just say, um, hopefully folks on this call know what uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, but I find thinking about that. I mean, when we started, it was very basic. It was, you know, it was about making sure people felt safe. And I'd say we've become far more self-actualized in terms of our use of this tool. It's dealing a lot more with mental health. It's dealing with, you know, fundamental transformation of how we're doing our business, not just now, but how that will um, stick once this is all over. I know one thing that was helpful for me too was knowing that where where there is a hierarchy of needs like that. And of course it's all on our minds first and foremost to keep our employees safe. And then probably secondarily, what does it mean for the company financially? Mm -hmm. um, I would say, I think it's really helped us not take our eye off the ball on things like, um, are we staying secure as the world changes? Mm -hmm. um, how's it affecting our vendors or partners? Um, some of those other areas that I think could have sprung up if we weren't fairly proactive with a, a a, a, a holistic framework. So I'm just going to quickly name off the, those eight things um, that, that we've uh, been focused on. And then I just want to quickly drill through each one of those uh, to talk a little bit about just the specific tools and that sort of thing we're using. Sure. Um, so the first of those eight is, of course, the health and safety of our workforce. Um, the second is the uh, productivity and effectiveness, call it the continuity of our workforce in doing their job. Um, the third is the continuity of our service to our customers. So are we still providing the same level of product, the same level of support, et cetera, or as, as high as possible given the, the pandemic? So continuity of our, our customer service. Um, fourth is uh, managing the, the financial contingencies, looking at the near and long-term financial impact. Fifth, um, the continuity of key third parties, in particular our, our vendors and our, in our case, our channel partners. Um, sixth is security. Uh, a lot has changed in the way we're using the technology we already had. And of course, if anything, um, fallout with, with key uh, with key partners has shown security to be a risk. Um, seventh is just keeping an eye on reputational monitoring. There's a lot of organizations at the moment that, that, um, 
it snuck up on bad news in the press about their organization snuck up on them. And uh, eighth, uh, and finally, is uh, communications and going back to are we communicating holistically, authentically, and with each of the different stakeholders that are important. So to just go through those quickly, on the first one, health and safety of, of the workforce. Um, I think there's a few things, Lori, that, that we've done there. But for us in particular, um, maybe uh, talk about this, the specific things we've done as far as uh, monitoring our offices, uh, the decisions you made there, and leading into uh, how we're trying to keep track of the safety of our, of our workforce. Even this one, Dan, for me, has evolved from you know, the self-disclosure, mm -hmm. it's asking me why would employees self-disclose, but, you know, I think that it's a cultural kind of um, uh, environment where people feel comfortable doing that. It's been really helpful for people. Yeah. To do so that. we put up an anonymous hotline report where people could self-disclose mm -hmm. anonymously or otherwise. And it turns out they're willing to do, they're broadly willing to right. do that. Um, we can be part of their support network and it helps us assess risk. So that, that, of course, has been really, really useful. It helps us help them when they ask for it. The other thing that was quite useful, and I mean, so obvious in retrospect, but remote technology capability. I mean, we don't have the same capability in India, for example, as we do in North America. It's really critically important. I understand who needs, you know, backup laptops and cell phones. Where do we want to make investments to upgrade internet speed? That's been really, really critical. Um, I would mentioned earlier employee survey and sentiment, kind of the mental health side of things has been really important. I suppose the one thing I, um, I hate to say, unfortunately, uh, we and I have to learn is if not employees themselves, fortunately, none of our employees have, have contracted this issue, but their families confirmed, <laughs> confirmed. that we're aware. Of. <laughs> and, uh, and so to learn how to have empathy, which with what will unfortunately be, you know, a growing number of employees who have not directly have, have experienced this with their families and loved ones, that's, uh, you know, that's definitely something on our mind. For sure. And I think um, as far as tools continuing to um, monitor, um, continuing to monitor and analyze both the, the news feeds as well as the actual mm -hmm. confirmed case data to think about things like when can we or when would it be safe to use our, use our office facilities again? Um, when will it be safe to hold physical events again? Um, right. Those are uh, other important considerations towards the workforce. So um, second was the productivity and effectiveness of the workforce. And I think one of the things you mentioned plays into this was the um, being able to, again, we, we did some self-reporting on uh, and, and analysis around uh, how capable uh, who can be working from home. Lucky for us, that's almost, that's basically everybody in a, in a tech firm, um, but not all businesses are so lucky. So who can be work from home, what kind of technology they have available to them. But beyond that, we've done some other things to make sure that our, the productivity of what we're doing as a workforce um, isn't falling off things like monitoring some of our, our, our systems activity and that sort of thing. Could you give an idea, maybe some more of the, the, the tools there that have helped you get a sense for um, not, not to spy on our employees, but to make sure that as we all disperse, that, that we can be a productive group. Is there other, other uh, tools you, you'd mention? Well, for us, uh, as a technology company, we tend to um, look at employees in, in different groups, for example, support our, our consulting group, sales and marketing, even back office, 
G&A, uh, things like HR and legal and finance. And, you know, every one of those employees wants to be busy and effective and productive in this situation. One thing that's been really interesting is to, you know, negotiate as a team. What are the one or two key things that we can measure that are leading indicators of kind of quality activity? Uh, it's been, frankly, uh, a very excellent exercise and surely this will be something that we'll carry with us on the other side. Um, the goal being that when smart people uh, free up because, you know, the, 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 the normal day job has changed, it's a chance for us to put them on other either customer-facing initiatives or other strategic initiatives. One of our goals is to go public. So if we have some uh, extra capacity to, you know, do what's necessary to be public company ready, those are examples of projects that we can create and queue and rally around so that people feel like they're adding to the big picture over time. So this, this live storyboard has galvanized a lot of excellent conversation. And uh, frankly, um, while it could be seen as a bit big brotherish, if you didn't know what it is, I'd say uh, it's done the exact opposite of that. Employees have a belief in the integrity of our intent around this. And by being visible with it, uh, it gives them uh, confidence that we'll take care of them. So the third area was the continuity of, of products and services to, to customers. Um, maybe I can start this one off with a couple mm -hmm. of um, a couple of organizations I've been speaking with um, and thinking about how they're approaching this from a risk management standpoint, and then I'll ask you the same for Galvanize, Lori. Um, but a good example is um, retailers. There's an awful lot of retailers out there who are awfully busy um, trying to deliver uh, critical supplies through the through the supply chain, both acquiring those and um, getting them out to customers. But it can also be very difficult to say, um, while we're trying to make sure that everybody has beans and rice and toilet paper, um, are we are we leveraging our resources effectively to get those things? Um, as opposed to uh, perhaps other types of uh, other types of things that that the retailer might supply that are far less critical, and of course, if we're moving things that are far less critical through warehouses and through stores, it's a whole bunch of employees that are working um, for purposes of stuff that isn't really important. Yet at the same time, um, or, or just broadly, capacity that's used on less essential supplies. So that's a good place where, of course, all points all across the supply chain that can be measured to make sure that we're dedicating resources to that which which matters given how quickly needed to shift um, supply chains for a retailer like that. Um, another bank I've I've been working with, I've I've told this story a few times, but the um, in their case there's there's um, in, in certain communities that they work in, a lot of people don't have access to online banking. And so keeping their bank branches open is quite critical to the financial stability of those communities. And so um, they've implemented tools where kind of similar to our uh, hotlines and things that we've mentioned, they have recurring daily um, uh, questionnaires and confirmations that go out to their branch managers across the bank validating that that branch is is in is in safe condition to be open things like is there plexiglass in front of the tellers was it disinfected overnight um, are all the supplies like hand sanitizer and others up to date um, a simple thing 
a seemingly simple thing to do, but in reality, it means, hey, if we if we run out of hand sanitizer or if we um, the cleaning crew didn't show up overnight or something of that nature, um, it means they get to sh- they may shut down one branch instead of shutting down sixty bank branches um, on the on the back of a bad news story. So help them keep the keeping the continuity mm-hmm. up. Um, lots and lots of stories like that I'm coming across uh, across customers, but Lori. Um, that was, you know, retailing and financial services. Maybe for for a technology company like us, um, how are you looking at the same? Well, of course, Dan, you um, have so many excellent customer relationships. You're you can speak to many uh, customer by customer stories. When I look at the this in aggregate, just to emphasize again, it's the mirror complement to workforce effectiveness. Uh, and when I look at the customer continuity storyboard. I mean, oversimplified across sales, marketing, um, support, customer success, the actual usage of our technology through to renewals, I can see an aggregate and I can see, you know, even down to segments or geographies where activity is going up and where it's going down. Um, You know, imagine knowing that in aggregate and then on a per customer basis where activity goes up, then of course we have a great opportunity to redeploy resources to help customers or like them do more of the same. And when activity goes down, we have a real opportunity to work with those interested to help understand why. Is it because of budget cuts? Is it because of temporary work from home uh, challenges? And by understanding why, it it likewise gives us the opportunity to figure out uh, if the customers want what we can do to uh, help them kind of recover their activity. It's it's yeah, it's been interesting for me to watch as you've as you've paid real close attention to um, do we see less consumption of our technical support or less mm-hmm. consumption of our software? Mm-hmm. Thinking about the continuity of 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 your service, which is galvanizes software and services out to the market. Um, it's it's funny how it holds still holds an exact parallel to me. I spoke last week with a um, with a large audit organization inside of a government. Um, inside a big government agency. Well, in their case, um, unlike a CEO like you, their role is to keep the level of assurance, the level of audits going um, and going up to uh, key government officials in a really risky time that they historically um, that they had historically done as well. And what they found was there's been cases where they were able to keep their workforce productive and working from home and doing audits, um, but based on technology limitations, their um, their stakeholders couldn't consume the results of those. Um, and it, it, it's it's interesting to me to think, um, even in that case, just even as a department or as an individual group, how this same kind of eight point response mm-hmm. plan uh, could be applicable to, um, to to managing risk through the through the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, area four is um, financial contingency. So this would be a massive one to unpack. Um, but Lori, maybe you can just give some idea for, um, maybe you can give some idea for as the threat levels to financial, uh, to financial results have escalated, um, as the pandemic escalated, um, how have you shifted focus in thinking about, um, in thinking about risk management around financial impact? Well, one of the, Worst things that could happen is a finance team 
off modeling pandemic risks without you know, the privilege of the kind of visibility I have in, in terms of workforce effectiveness. I mean, for us, you know, two thirds of our budget is based on people and to not have proper insight in terms of kind of the cost um, of that resource and, and how to shift it around um, the, the, without having the kind of access I do, I just don't think we could have as uh, well modeled uh, a cost strategy. And then, you know, to say the obvious on the customer side, um, there's going to be less new sales for almost all organizations in the, in the near term. And therefore, renewals becomes the name of the game. And, you know, what, what we're able to see and then intercept on the customer continuity side fundamentally informs the revenue side of modeling. So I guess the key uh, emphasis there is to make sure that, you know, these capabilities are connected, that they're not uh, developed and, and presented in silos. Yeah, and I would say I've certainly seen the evolution forward to where um, I, I still see a number of, of organizations I'm involved with um, actually still working through the early stages. How is this going to affect my my quarterly results or how is this going to affect um, uh, how is this going to affect um, you know how do I need to lay off people for cash flow right now today and maybe right. not having moved on yet to what happens six months from now? what happens nine months from now? And of course, um, one thing I think you're exceptional at, Lori, is the further, the sooner you start on a problem that's nine months away from a financial standpoint, the more savings build up and the more you can, the more you can manage the risk. That's very, very good point. I should have emphasized it. I call it the three, six, nine month plan, but frankly, I, I think it's actually uh, for us 14 months. So let's call it a year and a half. We've modeled out, uh, you know, low, medium, high scenarios and with the participation and support of our employees, we are doing what it takes right now to make sure that we're, we're spending responsibly and that we're redeploying uh, the resources that we retain uh, responsibly as well. And, you know, you never want to have to make hard calls multiple times in kind of in a surprise environment. Think right. by uh, taking a mid to long-term view and being responsible on the front end, uh, you know, it's always better to bring back investment than to have to continue to take it away. And that's been our approach. Yeah, excellent. So looks much different in, in, in different industries. Again, of, of course, a lot of uh, focus there in our framework around uh, liquidity and, and cash flow is, of course, all of uh, as, of course, all of you who are who are listening, I'm sure. Um, so I'll move on to number five, continuity of key vendors and partners. And maybe, Lori, I'd, I'd, I think you've done a, a particularly good job with our our channel partners around the world. Maybe you could characterize a little bit about um, the importance of our of our partners um, and and how you're managing risk with them. And then I'll give some um, stories on the perhaps on the the vendor and supplier side. Okay, that's great. I was going to say this 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 kind of category splits two ways for me. Um, I think what you describe as vendor, you know, organizations like Amazon or Salesforce that we rely on quite heavily. I'm not losing any sleep around that. Uh, we have 6,000 customers in 130 countries around the world. And um, I don't want to say I'm losing sleep around that, uh, maybe just a little bit. Uh, half of those are, uh, half of our 6,000 customers are, are um, 
managed through uh, resellers and we've got likewise an excellent culture with our resellers and we're doing what we can to, you know, kind of share forward the use of this, this risk management approach so that they likewise can have very similar uh, planning in place with their customers. So, um, you know, these, these partners tend to be in, uh, you know, a very diverse set of uh, countries around the world. And uh, so I'd say, you know, some of them have um, harder challenges than we might hear in a more North American centric environment. And it's really important that we are communicating frequently, you know, likewise with empathy, empathy as we are with our employees. Yeah, and I'd, I'd um, say for us it's important, and we only do what maybe 40% of our business through through partners. Of course, there's an awful lot of organizations we work with that do 100% of their uh, of their business through, mm-hmm. uh, through partners like that. And so um, being able to roll out this same response framework to ensuring, ensuring picking up early on risk across any of these areas, um, health, effectiveness, customer support, the financial viability of those partners, et cetera, um, becomes really, really important. Similarly for us, we're lucky as, as our key vendors are, are folks like Amazon, like Salesforce, other technology companies that can respond pretty well in a, in a situation like this. Um, unfortunately, lots of other, uh, organizations I've, uh, the lots of organizations in other industries don't have that same, uh, don't have that same luxury. So having a really tight day by day view of how certain critical, um, suppliers, I'm thinking of a construction company that's worried about their, um, that's worried about their plumbers and their cleaning staffs and, and, and those kinds of suppliers actually, um, showing up to carry out uh, what's necessary to move their projects forward in the way um, they've deemed still possible within the the crisis as uh, have been uh, have been scary examples. Mm-hmm. So number six, security. Now this one's really important for a tech company like us, and and the world uh, changes when we've gone all remote. Um, as a again as a risk management and cybersecurity company, I think we've done a pretty good. Uh, I think we've done a really good job here, um, but. Thinking about uh, thinking about uh, security of key vendors, and in particular, um, thinking about the um, just the heightened sense of fear and how people can act during times of fear. Um, seems, uh, I, I think, is the most important part of this response. And so we've built in quite a bit into the framework around when. Um, when fear is high, how do we avoid um, a increased incident of things like phishing attacks and other and other um, social engineering? So, uh, Lori, I don't know about you, but I get as many of ever uh, emails of of folks attempting to uh, get my passwords, tell me about how they send me to strange COVID nineteen websites that have special data but are full of malware all these all of these sorts of things anything you've you've observed as as you've seen uh, our security team respond to this that you think has been particularly important well you want to know what i feel like this one um has been uh i i mean business as usual kind of comes to word and i know that's the wrong word but i mean maybe we've dialed up a lot of what we always had had done Mm -hmm. It's just nice to feel confident and secure. I mean, I guess I put this in the category where it's less new 
And therefore, I, I suppose I'm taking a little bit more for granted just because I know it's being so well managed. Um, I guess the thing that just comes to mind right now, and, and it's just a restatement of that, we've just pushed out uh, yet again our, our recurring employee survey, all of the good stuff, you know, in terms of reminding people, you know, what are the just the basics, do's and don'ts. And, uh, you know, I guess I, I just feel lucky that I have that survey now. You know, a lot of folks kind of roll their eyes when they get it and they don't want to do it. But I, I'm pretty sure we're going to have a 100% response rate, response rate on that one yeah. in that very short order. Yeah, and we're lucky, of course, being a, a technology company. Everybody's on laptops and things like that. But I spoke to a family member of mine this weekend um, who was in a, a a clinical situation where a whole bunch of people had to shift to telemedicine, as an example, um, where they had been on desktops. They had to procure a whole bunch of laptops, um, send everybody home with these laptops, and, um, and, and put them all to work on there. And all of a sudden, you have a whole bunch of information endpoints that aren't on this protected network anymore um, and all rolled out in a big hurry in a highly regulated environment with sensitive mm -hmm. patient data. Um, those are the types of things that I think really important to be thinking about. Did we do a good enough job with endpoint security uh, as we, you know, at the same time, basically trying to save our service to the customer, um, at, uh, you know, in the process. So a big one there in number six, security. So number seven, uh, reputational monitoring. I, I can't help but um, mention an, an organization like uh, Zoom itself that has gone through um, a huge spike in, in, in interest in their service and, and then uh, struggled so much with some reputational um, fallout that, that, that's come out of that. Um, I've preached for years about how basic analytics can do things like monitor Twitter and news stories just to give you early flag warning signs that something is uh, offsides uh, reputationally. And so while that may be not be the, the biggest priority, I think um, having some eye on and some control around uh, is there is there an opportunity to just catch reputational fallout if it's happening for some reason? Press heard about somebody is sick. I watch uh, all kinds of news all weekend of of picking on different uh, companies who whose employees have spoken out. Uh, those sorts of things. I just I think that's worth keeping an eye on. Any other mm -hmm. anything you you mentioned on that one, Lori? Well, I, I guess just. I'm uh, hearing you talk there, I, I suppose, you know, focus on what you can control is stating the obvious, act with integrity of intent. I mean, we're using our core values, obviously, very heavily through this situation, using social media type analytics to monitor the stuff that's more malicious, I, I think is, you know, a, a very uh, compliment. And, you know, I suppose then um, uh, watching what's happening with your peers is another opportunity for, for analytics. Mm. And then, of course, number eight, we've spoken about quite a bit, but communications. And, and Laura, you spoke a lot about our employee, about employee communications. 
authenticity, customer communications, all that's been, um, we've built controls into the same framework that, that we're happy to share out. But I'd just maybe ask here if you could s- s- just speak to the cadence of communication with stakeholders more broadly. You've already spoken a lot about employees, but how about um, what we've shared with customers or you with your board or your financial stakeholders? Is there any other um, points there you, you'd emphasize on on, yeah. your, on your controls around recurring recurring communication with those stakeholders? I don't actually think it's an exaggeration. Keep me honest here, Dan, mm-hmm. to say I'm probably spending 50% to two-thirds of my time on communications. Uh, we've talked at length about employees uh, with our board. It's weekly. Our board also has access to all of our live storyboards with my CEO uh, peers. It's weekly. And, of course, you and I, Starting on our birthday, March 25th, I mean, we've been on kind of conversations like this. It feels like every second day, um, I think we've talked to over 2,000 organizations. And so um, the number one job is communications. I mean, doing everything else on this, you know, the other seven, if you're not telling people about it, you know, you may as well not be doing a lot of it. So can't emphasize enough, not just the quantity of communications, but finding ways to make sure that they're, hitting the right message. And you can only do that if, you know, you've got a lot of the insight that we've gotten all these other pieces. And I think your emphasis there, Lori, really motivated us to make sure that the, the nuts and bolts of that were built into the, to the framework, things like, mm-hmm. um, do we have dedicated pages on our website about, about how we're responding, um, about viability, about pandemic plans we had in place. Um, like you mentioned, going to a, a, an actually weekly board check-in, things of that nature um, mm-hmm. have been uh, an extreme focus there. So that's- You know, for some folks, um, I, I'll say this just since I, as I remember it, you know, um, uh, I hate to put it this way, but many on boards tend to be a bit older. And so, you know, as we talk about work from home capability and technology capability for employees and even certain customers, it's definitely true of board members as well. So perhaps something we should probably talk a little bit more about in the future is just some uh, uh, board productivity discussion as well. And, and maybe I could just kind of give a wrapping comment on this. This is an opportunity for us as risk professionals to drive more dialogue at the board and at the C-suite level. It's an invitation for us as a profession to bring a data-informed, kind of agile and collaborative, uh, prioritized picture to the board and to the C-suite. That's what we need. And to the extent we can kind of leverage this crisis as an opportunity to kind of reposition the profession uh, I, th- I, you know, I think that would be, uh, you know, a, a very positive outcome. That's excellent. Leads into a, a perfect wrapping up, uh, wrapping up couple of questions. So, um, I totally agree on the evolution of the profession. Maybe can you tell me mm-hmm. um, what, if anything, do you feel like has changed in the role of of the CEO? now for you that that you see is how are you going to look at your job now permanently differently you know very personally it i think this has made all of us whether you're the ceo or just you know any employee value our loved ones and value our health um and while we all want financial security of course for our our families and for the businesses we live in you know, I, I think that if we sell for an order people first, 
kind of the profit financial side will come in. For me, it's it's just amplified the importance of that. It's really made me reflect on, you know, being the best kind of leader I can on the people front. And, you know, the making time, 50 to 65% of my time available for, you know, as many individual reach outs as I can, that, you know, that's an excellent, I think, um, return on my time at this point. So I suppose, you know, the, the humanity that's, uh, you know, a, an outcome of all of this for us as individual leaders and just kind of the world um, uh, united has been a, a remarkable thing to reflect on. So, you know, what does this look for us on the other side? You know, hopefully um, a lot more emphasis on those kind of soft skills and, uh, you know, kind of a, a recast of, of the party of stakeholder that we're solving for again to say it, employee and customer and then shareholder for us at least. I love that answer. I'll, t- I'll take from that answer and summarize. Um, perhaps it's not so much about what changed permanently, but bringing your own personal core values back to the front of, of how you manage as CEO. And so I'll wrap up with this one to say, um, for everybody out there who is involved with us as Galvanize, could you just maybe comment the same on how will the handling of this crisis, um, how has it helped you or, or more importantly, how do you think it's helped galvanize, um, live into its own um, values, vision, and mission? Well, our three core values are authenticity, customer intensity, and embracing ambiguity. Um, I I can't think of any example where all three played at the same time uh, have mattered uh, more. Um, Our vision is to be the operating system of conscious organizations, and, you know, just uh, just to double click on that, that's, you know, that goes well beyond kind of the classic profit agenda of, you know, the baby boomers and well beyond, you know, maybe more of a revenue growth centric agenda of the uh, Gen Xers, you know, the, the more millennial centric vision we have today, the operating system of social of conscious organizations really speaks to our ability to, you know, address a broader risk platform, whether it be it climate or be it pandemics. And so um, this is a real opportunity for us to likewise live into that and to put our money where our mouth is, quite frankly, in terms of lining our employees up against that, against that, um, against that vision. Exceptional. Well, I think that's uh, a good amount of time spent, Lori. Thank you so much for doing this. And um, I'll just say, you know, for me, a very personal thank you for what a a fantastic and gracious leader you've been um, as we've moved through this. And of course, to all of our customers, we're not only here for you as we always have been, um, but especially uh, anything that we can uh, help with where uh, leveraging what we've learned from here uh, for your organizations uh, as well. Uh, Lori and I, I'm sure, would both be personally glad to, to help out with that shared experience. Thank you so much for doing this, Lori. Thanks, Dan. It was my pleasure, and I look forward to uh, more conversations with you like this. Thanks for joining us for this week's Office Hours. Make sure to visit wegalvanize.com for free resources to help you deliver better enterprise governance. See you next time.